Concluding Dissertation, Section 146 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Concluding Dissertation, The Dogmatic Import of the Life of Jesus. Section 146. Objections to the Christology of the Church. The Reformed Church did not go thus far with the Lutherans in their doctrine of the person of Christ, for they did not admit the last and boldest consequence drawn by the latter from the union of the manhood and godhead, the communicatio idiomatum, or communication of properties. The Lutherans themselves did not hold that the properties of the human nature were communicated to the divine nor that all the properties of the divine nature, eternity, for example, could be communicated to the human, and this gave occasion on the part of the Reformed Church to the following objection. The communication of properties must be reciprocal and complete, or it is none at all. Moreover, by the communication of the properties of an infinite nature to a finite one, the latter is not less annihilated as to its essence than an infinite nature would be were it to receive the properties of a finite one. When the Lutherans sought shelter in the position that the properties of the one nature were only so far shared by the other as according to its character is possible, uti per suam indolem potest, they in fact did away altogether with the communicatio idiomatum and indeed this doctrine has been explicitly given up even by orthodox theologians since reinhard but the simple root of this complicated exchange of properties the union of the divine and human natures in one person has also met with contradiction the Socinians denied it on the ground that two natures, each of which alone constitutes a person, cannot be united to form a single person, especially when they possess properties so opposite as where the one is immortal, the other mortal, the one uncreated, the other created. And the rationalists agree with them insisting more particularly that the formulae of the church in which the above union is defined are almost entirely negative thus presenting no conception to the mind that in a christ who by the aid of a divine nature dwelling within him withstood evil and kept himself from sin the man who is destitute of such aid can have no true example the essential and tenable points of the rationalistic objections to this doctrine have been the most acutely perceived and arranged by schleiermacher who on this subject as on many others has brought the negative criticism of the dogmas of the church to completeness before all else he finds it a difficulty that by the expression divine nature and human nature divinity and humanity are placed under one category and what is more under the category of nature which essentially denotes only a limited being conceived by means of its opposite further 
while ordinarily one nature is common to many individuals or persons here one person is supposed to partake of two different natures now if by person be meant the permanent conscious unity of a living being and by nature the sum of the laws which govern the conditions of life in that being it is not to be conceived how two opposite systems of conditions can have but one centre the absurdity of this doctrine becomes according to schleiermacher especially evident in the supposition of two wills in christ since for consistency two wills must be associated with two understandings and as the understanding and will constitutes the personality christ would on this supposition be inevitably divided into two persons it is true that the two wills are supposed always to will in unison but on the one hand there results from this only a moral not a personal unity on the other hand this unison of wills is not possible in relation to the divine and the human will since the latter which from its very essence can only exercise itself on particulars as they present themselves in succession can as little will the same with the former whose object is the whole in its development as the human understanding which acts by reasoning can think the same with the divine understanding which acts intuitively hence it evidently follows also that a communication of properties between the two natures is not to be admitted the doctrine of the work of christ did not escape a similar criticism passing over what has been objected in point of form to the division of this work into three offices the ideas of revelation and miracles under the head of the prophetic office were chiefly called in question it was argued that these ideas agreed neither objectively with just conceptions of god and the world in their reciprocal relation nor subjectively with the laws of the human intellect that the perfect god could not have created a world which from time to time needed the extraordinary interposition of the creator nor more particularly a human nature which was incapable of attaining its destination by the development of its innate faculties that the immutable being could not operate on the world first in this manner then in that at one time mediately at another immediately but that he must always have operated on it in the same manner namely in himself and on the whole immediately but for us and on individuals mediately that to admit an interruption of the order of nature and of the development of humanity would be to renounce all rational thought while in the particular case in question a revelation or miracle is not confidently to be recognized as such since in order to be sure that certain results have not proceeded from the powers of nature and the faculties of the human mind a perfect knowledge of the resources of both would be requisite and of such a knowledge man is not possessed 
but the main difficulty lay in the office of high priest attributed to jesus in the doctrine of the atonement that which especially drew forth objections was the human aspect which in anselm's system was given to the relation of god to the son of man as it well becomes man to forgive offences without exacting vengeance so thought Sokinus, might god forgive the offences committed against him by men without satisfaction to meet this objection hugo grotius argued that not as in consequence of personal injuries but to maintain the order of the moral world inviolable or in virtue of his justitia rectoria god cannot forgive sins without satisfaction nevertheless granting the necessity for satisfaction it did not appear to be met by the death of jesus while anselm and still more decidedly thomas aquinas spoke of a satisfactio superabundans Sokinus denied that christ had ever borne as much punishment as men have deserved for every individual man having deserved eternal death consequently as many substitutes as sinners ought to have suffered eternal death whereas in this case the single christ has suffered merely temporal death and that as an introduction to the highest glory nor did this death attach to his divine nature so that it might be said to have infinite value but only to his human nature on the other hand duns scotus in opposition to thomas and subsequently grotius and the arminians equidistant from orthodoxy as sokianism adopted the expedient of maintaining that the merit of christ was indeed in itself finite like its subject his human nature and hence was inadequate as a satisfaction for the sins of the world but that god accepted it as adequate out of his free grace but from the admission that god can content himself with an inadequate satisfaction and thus can forgive a part of the guilt without satisfaction it follows necessarily that he must also be able thus to forgive the whole besides these more precise definitions however the fundamental idea of the whole fabric namely that one individual can take upon himself the punishment due to the sins of another has been attacked as an ignorant transference of the conditions of a lower order of relation to a higher moral transgressions it has been said are not transmissible obligations it is not with them as with debts of money which it is immaterial to the creditor who pays provided they are paid rather it is essential to the punishment of sin that it should fall on the guilty only if according to this the so-called passive obedience of christ cannot have been vicarious still less can his active obedience have been so since as man he was bound to render this on his own behalf in relation to the kingly office of christ the hope of his second advent to judge the world 
lost ground in the sentiment of the church in proportion as the opinion obtained that every individual enters on a state of complete retribution immediately after death for this opinion made the general judgment appear superfluous end of section 146